Hello and welcome to the latest edition of our GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode, we've got a very special guest, George Finney. He's going to talk to us about security awareness and zero trust. Hi, George. Can you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about what the company you work for does? Thanks, first, for, uh, for having me on. I appreciate the, the, the chance to talk to y'all's audience. So, howdy. Uh, I'm, I'm George. Uh, if you can tell from my accent, I'm the chief security officer for Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. And uh, gosh, a little about me. Uh, I've been in security for uh, o- over 20 years. In my spare time, uh, when I'm not uh, a CISO, I'm, I've written a few cybersecurity books. So my roast, most recent uh, book, uh, Project Zero Trust, um, is actually the number one book in the world on zero trust. So that, that's kind of exciting. My last book, Well Aware, it's, it's essentially Stephen Covey's Seven Habits for, for Cybersecurity. It won the Book of the Year Award. So, you know, I, I've been having a little bit of fun on the side. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I get so excited and passionate about uh, security in general is just, particularly the university, we, we can see the difference we're making. We see the the people we're protecting every day because they're on campus, right? We, we'll, we'll walk around and, and see hundreds of students. And that that... You know, knowing that that security is so important, particularly to uh, to parents who are sending and trusting their kids with us, uh, being a part of that, I, gosh, it, it's it's just the, one of the most uh, rewarding and fulfilling jobs I I think I could have. Fantastic, yeah. I mean, absolute pleasure to have you on. So I know, I know you mentioned uh, that you've got your books. That there's a lot that you've been getting on with there the last few years. But uh, the other question is, what other stuff uh, do you get up to outside of work? Is there any other interests? I mean, um, in your busy schedule, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so if you're watching the video, you you can see behind me. Uh, I've got a a painting of Optimus Prime. Uh, if if you're not watching, uh, you know the video. There's a picture of Optimus Prime behind me. Um, and so I, a few years ago, my my wife, uh, she she's very understanding. I took up this hobby of uh, spray paint pop art robots. So I've got a whole series of them. Actually, Optimus was the very first one uh, that I painted. Just that uh, that creative outlet, like when I'm not writing books, you know, the creativity just keeps pouring out. Uh, so having that, that that little bit of an outlet to be able to create, and and especially with spray paint, it's it's really cool. I don't know any other spray painter artists that like dual wield their spray paint cans like I do, like, but I like mixing colors like in the air on the flies. And anyway, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. I only do a few paintings a year, but gosh, it's just such a fun thing just to to, to be able to do occasionally. Say a set of guitars. Are the guitars yours as well, or are they? Yeah. So I, uh, in my in my spare time, when I'm not painting or writing books, <laughs> or you know, starting a security company, so I have a guitar uh, for every time that I've tried to start learning to play guitar. Right. <laughs> so uh, you know, it, it it hasn't stuck for you know. I think it's I'm on my sixth time getting into it, and and finally, like in the last six months, it I don't know what changed, but. All of a sudden, you know, I, I, I'm sticking with it every day. I play, you know, 10, 15 minutes, learn a new song or two a week. It's, you know, again, I don't watch a lot of TV anymore because uh, all my hobbies take up all my time. Fantastic. So you spoke a little bit about your current role. So you're a CISO. Can you give an overview of how you got into your current role? You said you had 20 years in security. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about your career? Yeah. So, so it, I, I've, I've done almost everything in, in security. I started out as a network engineer, and that like is the normal path for how a lot of people got started. Just you know, it was natural. I'm you know setting up networks. Okay, can you just manage the firewall or you know put in ACLs and and unlock it down? From there, I I went to a startup where I was responsible for all of the Linux systems we had. So email, DNS, 
I, I happen to inherit uh, a lot of those configs from a, a guy that's way more security, you know, paranoid than I am, which is saying something. And so I got to kind of learn through all of his, how to really do that on a lot of different disparate systems. Uh, we developed code. So figuring out how to write secure code and support my team that way. But I came to SMU to go to law school. So I'm, I'm a licensed attorney. Please don't hold that against me. Um, you know, the, the intersection of policy and compliance and regulations on top of that technical background, SMU just made an offer to, that I couldn't refuse to stick around and to be able to do all of that as their first SSO. I was so lucky to have been able to to go through my whole journey here. And I think that's 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 one of the very fortunate things. I mean, SMU's got an awesome culture, and I think I've uh, become a better person because I've been at SMU. But also, having been there so long, right, every, you know, I've been involved with every aspect of managing the the security program. So starting out with with firewalls, obviously, but then I inherited physical security and then we inherited uh, application security and then cloud and culture. I'm so lucky because having this long tenure is is, most other CISOs are only, you know, in, in a job for two, three years. You might only get to be a part of a couple of projects where you do new and innovative things. And for us, gosh, I've you know I rolled out our first next gen firewalls. I've been a part of the EDR, XDR, NDR kind of conversation. So I, I just love security because it satisfies that little bit of curiosity in me. You're always having to learn and stay on the bleeding edge just to kind of keep up. And man, I, I think I would get bored otherwise. I mean, there's a lot to ingest there, but like, like I said, I think I think it's interesting. I've got a couple of friends who uh, started life as they did uh, some technical jobs and they actually went and studied law, and a few of them now are like directors or senior people at banks and other things in information security positions. So I don't think it's as <laughs> uncommon as you think. But I think one of the things probably to get size and scale, so talk about it. So can you tell us a little bit about the size and scale of the university? So the number of people you're, I guess, looking after, and then also talk a little bit about the information security function and how they're structured. Yeah, so when people think about college or university, the tendency is just to think about you know the classroom and 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 student learning, uh, which is is a big part. It's it's an important part of it. But higher ed institutions are very focused on research. So intellectual property is is a huge thing. For our university, we've got five different uh, live event venues, uh, museums, and, and and whatnot. Right. So any given day, fifty thousand people might show up on our campus to watch a football game or to see I don't know Kesha <laughs> live in concert. So really dynamic environment. It's a lot more like a city because of all the different, right? We're, we're an ISP to the thousands of students that live on campus. You know, we, we're an email provider. We give our students and alumni email for life. So we've got, you know, tens and tens of thousands of unique accounts that we're, we're, we're managing for folks, even after they uh, move on from the university. So gosh, it, you know, they, it works like a, a little bit like a bank in that we have handle financial transactions, but also... Uh, we've got a, a health center. Some universities have a hospital. So th- th- there is so much in our environment. You know, obviously we're we're spread a little thin, but the satisfaction of being in, in all those different environments and kind of uh, being able to get to know lots of different things. Gosh, it, it, it's such a unique world. But SMU, gosh, we, we've got about 11, 12,000 students. So only 2,500 employees. So it, it's, it's a good sized environment uh, for for a security team to kind of manage. Also, you know, higher ed is is necessarily much more decentralized than, than a lot of other types of work. So it takes that much more uh, relationship building 
uh, to connect all of those various silos and get people participating together and collaborating. And again, that's that's something that I think security has such a, a an, an influential role to play in kind of forging those relationships and, and, and trust between all of our various communities inside the university. One of the things I guess that's quite different is like, you've obviously got, like say, employees, but you've got people that they come to university, they study at the university, but I guess they're very different in their security awareness from a traditional organization. And you're probably having to do a very different job from people saying, well, you've got to do this, which whether that's the right way or wrong way to go about it, <laughs> explaining why they shouldn't do it that way is probably better. But how is it like adapting the way that you have to interact with a very different audience? You know, it was a bit of a culture shock coming from the corporate world to higher ed. Higher ed moves <laughs> obviously a lot slower than other organizations, which is good and bad. I mean, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses, I think. But yeah, I think it's, again, we've got volunteers, right? It's not just students. We've got student workers. So playing a role, you you, you are a student, you've got those roles, you, you, you're also an employee, and you've got the different roles. So yeah, there is a lot going on, right? And, and with faculty in particular, it's a lot like in the healthcare industry, I think folks express your frustration with the users because, you know, when someone gets a PhD, they obviously become an expert, not just in their one like field, but they become an expert in everything, which is good. You know, I mean, honestly, it's frustrating sometimes to, to have an argument with folks about what security means or ought to be in their environment. And we don't want to get in the way of faculty doing research. We want to enable them to do even better research and to protect that intellectual property Maybe, you know, they're seeing the, the short-term benefits of their research or program or whatever they're doing. We like to take the long approach and make sure that that information is, is protected in the long term. And, you know, in, in, again, in higher ed, a lot of faculty members are very concerned about academic freedom. Sometimes security can can seem like, you know, we're big brother. We're watching you. We're reading your email. No, we don't yeah. we don't have time. But you know, <laughs> think that, that, someone sat there just reading all your emails. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what a boring job that would be. But gosh, again, there's so much going on in, 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 in this lively environment. Um, I, I think there's there's something that anyone can get out of it. I guess it's just a, a very different, well, a different organization, but ultimately it comes back to making sure that business or your research is done securely, but at the same time you're enabling it. You're not just saying we're blocking this. And if we are, here's a reason. If you really want to go against it, we'll have a discussion, <laughs> but I want well, you to understand it, right? I mean, it's been, there's been a huge evolution over the last 20 years. I mean, today, you have to have security to just get a basic grant as a data scientist, right? Getting access to somebody's restricted data set or putting a proposal in, how are you going to secure and protect this other student data that, that we're giving you? So all across the board, I think there's so much more awareness now than, than, than there was, you know, even 10 or five years ago. So, you know, I, I think all of that attention that's been brought to security is making a difference. And obviously, we want to see that continue to evolve into a better place. So who do you report to in the organization? And what is the kind of size of your team? We've got a small security team, just five folks. I report to our CIO, as a lot of other folks in higher ed do. So not the huge team, right? We supplement occasionally with student workers. We have outsourced security partners, obviously, that help us with things that you know we don't have the capabilities to do in-house. But yeah, I mean, imagining... <laughs> you know, a bank of a similar size, you, you might have a, a significantly larger team and a, a much smaller scope to deliver. So yeah, we, we have to get creative in ways that, I, again, I, I think it's it's challenging and at the end of the day, really rewarding to see us in a place where, where we can feel good about. 
plus yeah it's a very different thing if you think about when you were saying before like on a given day you've got what twelve thousand, let's say employees but you've also got forty thousand visitors <laughs> or fifty thousand visitors in a normal organization where like you say a bank probably a little bit more than five or six people in your security function so is there any particular things that you have to do that have really helped in that kind of organization i mean obviously it's the size of scheme but i mean you said you're using partners so you're using technology partners where you can is there anything else you know honestly you know i'm gonna plug my book a little bit check out project zero trust by george <laughs> finney again you know, it's, 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 it's a pretty good read no i i think honestly you know zero trust focusing on prevention is really what's made you know what we do possible and again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I literally wouldn't be here talking to you if it wasn't for zero trust because I'd, I'd be busy fighting fires, right? You know, we know that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, we know that prevention is is the most cost effective way of handling a breach, right? And rather than you know paying it, uh, you know, a ransom or, or or you know forensic consultants or whatever after the fact. So I think you know the the challenge has really been how do we convince people that prevention is possible? You know, how do how do we convince people that that, that investing that extra, you know, five or ten percent of effort on any given project is going to pay off, you know, tenfold after the project is over. And I think that's where we've had, you know, again, a lot of success. And you know, part of it is building relationships, right? Part of it is being here for so long. You know, I, I've developed that trust and that relationship over time, where people feel like, yeah, we're on board with with that idea, with that project, with that uh, strategy. That's challenging, right? You know, building that up over time, you know, having, you know, and, and again, in the corporate world, things move much faster, much shorter tenures there. So building those relationships is is something that yeah, I, I, you can't take for granted, right? You've got to invest in those every day. So you spoke about, you've written your book, but can you tell a little bit more about, I guess, Project Zero Trust, talk through some of the high level concepts and a little bit how the book's written and what, what are the key takeaways for the listeners if they want to read it? Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of an unusual read in that it's not, you know, a whole, you know, boring technical reference jargon. So I, I was particularly inspired by the Phoenix Project. If, so if you read that, it's about DevOps, but it's 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 a story of a fictional character and a fictional company that implement zero trust. Or uh, so for us, it's uh, the company's March fit. The main character's name is Dylan, and you know he he goes through a, a zero trust journey. Right, they bring in their a security guru that that knows zero trust and kind of trains them up on it, and then they have to go and, and kind of mop up after a breach, but also you know implement zero trust before their uh, before their new product comes out. So their their clients, their customers can feel confident in that new product. I wanted to make it very relatable, right? So the company doesn't have perfect security, uh, but they also don't have you know what I would say terrible security. They don't have a CISO. You know, again, I wanted it to make very relatable to anyone coming in. Uh, maybe you're new to the industry and you want to, you know, see the big picture, you, or maybe you've been in the industry for 20 or 30 years and you might be an expert in one area, but th there should be something you can get out of it in those other areas. But I, I partnered with the guy that created Zero Trust, John Kindervog. So we use his design methodology. That's a repeatable process for everybody going through their Zero Trust journeys. Awesome. Also, there's a, a zero trust maturity model that, that not a lot of people have heard about, uh, which helps you, right? You don't have to get it perfect on day one. You're not going to get it perfect on day one, but it's going to be a continual you know, evolution as your company grows and expands and changes over time, right? Your your, your security needs to, to grow and change with it. And uh, so honestly, my favorite part of the book, 
was actually we we got one of the actors from The Walking Dead to be the narrator for the audiobook. It's been such a cool journey. Man, I mean, the people that have read it really, really, really love it. I mean, it's, it's on people's you know, top 10 lists at the end of the year. I'm so, you know, humbled by people's reaction to the book. It's really taken off in a way that I, I didn't quite expect it to. Fantastic. So I guess you've explained a little bit about the book. So for the listeners who aren't aware what Zero Trust is, do you mind just going through, like, explaining high level what Zero Trust is and how organizations kind of go about implementing this kind of strategy? Absolutely. So thank you uh, for, for that. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I think it is important to take a second to understand what zero trust really means, because there's there's so much confusion out there about it. I was at a conference last year and you know there were 15 CISOs in the room and we we all went around and gave our definition of zero, zero trust, right? And as you might imagine, you know, different. 15 people, <laughs> there were 16 different definitions, right? And, you know, part of that is, you know, what a lot of CISOs hear about zero trust is what you know, marketers or vendors have to say about zero trust, right? And, you know, it's cool. They've got their own, all, they've all got their own angle on and necessarily build that up because of the way their product can, can help you with that. I wanted to, to take a step back and, and look at the big picture, right? So zero trust is not a tool. Zero trust is not an architecture, even though Gartner is trying to convince people that, that there is a zero trust, you know, a Z magic quadrant or something, whatever. And, you know, again, I think that only adds the confusion, but uh, you know, there, there's a one sentence definition of what zero trust is. So we've, I've been building up the drama, right? Dramatic pause. So zero trust is a strategy, right? It's a strategy for preventing or containing breaches by removing the trust relationships we have in digital systems. That's one sentence. It's, that's the definition. How does that help us? Well, you know, it turns out we really haven't had a strategy for success in cybersecurity, right? Every every CISO kind of, you know, does the dark art and figures it out, you know, as they get to know things based on their own experiences, right? Oh, uh, uh, cool. Well, again, we know prevention is the most cost-effective way of doing cybersecurity. That's why Zero Trust focuses on that. that. That's why I think it's transformative. But when you go do Zero Trust, right? So I've been saying that, that Zero Trust the most important part of zero trust are the humans, the people that do zero trust, right? Without them, you know, you can't do it. And so I think the reality is as a CISO, right? A lot of the people that I need to go do zero trust don't report to me. They're not security nerds like me, right? It's it's the help desk folks. It's the, you know, network engineers. It's the desktop consultants. It's the DevOps developers. It's the cloud architects, right? All of those other people I've got to bring into the fold and help them get on the same page in terms of strategy so that now when we move forward, everybody is, is working together on the same team to protect all the different protect surfaces that, that we have in our organizations. That's really the, the reason that having a strategy is so important, right? So if you're a general in a military, you know, there's terrain you have to understand. That's like understanding your business. There are tools that you have, right? In a military context, that might be infantry or cavalry or air support or artillery, whatever your tools are, you, you might even change the terrain, right? You might dig trenches, right? These are all things that CISOs do inside organizations, right? It's managing terrain. When you have to go manage an army, though, they need to understand their commander's intent. And that, you know, distillation down into two words, zero trust, is the way that we make security simple enough and understandable enough for all of these disparate teams that maybe don't have a security background to work on the same page and achieve that outcome, which is prevention. I really like that kind of simple sentence because basically you can say something like, okay, well, it's basically about, we can take that and we can filter that down across all our policies, 
procedures, the way we access provisions and all the things we do are based on actually making sure you've got the right things to do your role, but we're not giving you, because look, we all know it and we've all worked at organizations where, especially the functions you spoke about, they acquire lots of things over a very long period of time. And look, that's really helpful for their job. But what ends up happening is you end up with these very big targets with a lot of permissions and things where it can go wrong. And, and look, it's about educating them, right? And understanding why we don't want that to happen. We need good segregation of duties between things. We need to make sure that if you have got the things, it's appropriate for your role, et cetera. But I like that because you can use it for your policies and procedures and use that as like a, that statement is the tone of how we write everything that people then understand. Absolutely. People are the most important part of Zero Trust. And anybody can go out to your local electronics store and buy a switch or a router or you know firewall or whatever. You can plug it in and it'll start working uh, in 60 seconds, right? You know, you, you, you plug your cables in and you're good to go. So, you know, it's not that people don't want to do security, but if, you know, as, as a manager or leader, right, you need them to do, to do more than just plug the stuff in and get it to work. You've got to bake in time for that. There's got to be space and focus put towards security to, to make it happen. And all across the board, it's not just IT that needs to, to support zero trust, right? It's, a, it's the organization's leadership. It's your, your partners, your, your vendors in the marketplace giving you feedback and uh, you know, helping you you continue to to grow and get better. Definitely. So, what are those some of the big common misconceptions? I know you said about kind of the the view of Gartner or other people. Is there any other common misconceptions about zero trust? Yeah. You know, again, I, I think people want to jump straight into architecture, right? I want a zero trust architecture because that's the way we talk about it. There is no reference architecture when it comes to zero trust, right? Everything is totally. Uh, custom bespoke, right? So, you, you know, you, you're not buying a suit off the rack and you're getting it custom tailored to fit you and your unique life the way you live it. And, you know, again, I, I think that should resonate with folks, right? You don't expect to go to a job interview and, you know, you're, you're wearing a, you know, a suit that, you know, you, you hand me down from your, your, your grandfather. No, you, you want to, you want to invest that extra little bit in, in making sure, you know, because you're, you're investing something that's worth it. And again, I, I think zero trust works the same way. So yeah, it's not an architecture. It's not a tool. It's definitely something that you need to work on. And, and the truth is you'll probably never arrive at a place where you have zero trusts in your environment. And that's okay, right? It, it's a maturity process. And we know that the attackers are always evolving, which means we're going to have to evolve as well, right? And you know, once we find we had a blind spot somewhere, we need to you know fix that. And that's a part of the the design methodology that, that that we talk about in the book, right? It's something that that you build into the process. I know you've you've implemented, like you say, a zero trust strategy. Is there any practical steps that you think an organization, say, if they, say they've started to read the book, they've got an understanding about it, they've heard enough about it. How do you go about implementing a zero trust strategy? Great question, right? I, I think the first step is you got to understand your business, whatever that business is, right? So when when I first started at SMU 20-some years ago, I didn't actually know how universities make money. We're a nonprofit, so, you know, you, you maybe say we don't make money, but we deal with, uh, you know, a l- large amounts of tuition payments and, and, and whatnot. Um, but that's not really where universities make their money. Again, licensing intellectual property. You know, we have summer camps where we, you know, we, we essentially rent our facilities out to to camp goers over the summers. There's so many different ways. You, you've got to start with that understanding of the business, right? Understand why you're doing certain things, right? There's lots of ways to accomplish something in an organization. 
And you know, if the, the the person delivering the service doesn't understand why they're doing what they're doing, right? Okay, we'll just do a VPN. Okay, is that zero trust or not? Well, I can't answer that question because I don't know what you're what you're doing. Lots of folks want to get rid of VPNs in general for for lots of good reasons. But you know, I think what whatever you end up being asked to do, you know, you've got to think about it critically and understand. Okay, well, is, is there a, a way where we can both improve security and improve outcomes at the same time and enable the business rather than hindering it, right? That's a complicated thing to do if you don't know what the business does and how they do it and, and what's important to the business. Understanding what you have and what you need to protect, uh, right? Going back to the CIS top 20 controls. It's 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 been inventory uh, is the number one thing on that list. You know, you, you can't protect something without knowing that it's there. And, you know, you can start your, your zero trust journey from anywhere, but beginning with a you know a business impact analysis to know what your top 10 or 20 applications are. That's what you need to know to protect them. You need to know where your devices are. You need to know how your network is structured. You know, is it a, a retail, you know, kind of model hub and spoke where you've got hundreds or thousands of, you know, remote offices that, that all check back in? Or is it, you know, like, you know, our university where we have one main campus and everything's kind of there? And everything else in the middle, right, from the cloud to private data centers or whatever. So I think, again, it's about removing the trust relationships and teaching, you know, people how to spot a trust relationship is really important, right? So, you know, giving them the humans, the space to learn and understand the process and and then kind of fit it into your organization. That, that's the hard work that, that people are going to do for you. You know, again, it, it's about investing in them, training them you know, giving the resources they need to be successful at that. Fantastic. And that kind of leads on to, I guess, when you're talking about trust and awareness is you've got a large amount of students. How do you get them to buy into security? You know, it's funny. I think we think about it like they're buying into security, but I actually, I think security is one of the most important things to them, right? That's why they come to us rather than a, you know a, a different place. I, I was sitting in, in our library one day, and and a tour of of you know prospective students came through. The, the admissions tour guide you know stopped. They didn't know I was there, but I overheard them talking about hey, yeah you know we, you know they pointed out the cameras, they pointed out the the security escort service that we offer. Like it was it was just eye opening for me to hear this is a selling point for us. This is something that, you know, even a non-technical admissions tour guide knows because, you know, parents, you know, they want to know they're sending their, their, their kids someplace safe and secure. So I, I think everybody wants to play that role and wants to, to be a part of protecting their communities, right? We love the places we spend our time in. And that's, that's also part of why uh, in my previous book, Well Aware, we created a cyber personality test based on the nine cybersecurity habits that I talk about in, in, in Well Aware. And I think one of the ways that we get people on the same team, you know, I, I've worked with other CISOs where we'll have their whole team take the cyber personality test and we kind of map the team to show where their strengths are and where the, maybe their weaknesses are. But at a basic level, right, I want us to stop saying this, but our unofficial motto in the cybersecurity field is people are the weakest link. That's wrong. People are the biggest attack surface, you know, for sure. But people aren't the weakest link. People are the only link, right? It's, it's only people in our organizations. And we have to find a way to make them comfortable with playing a role in security. 
cybersecurity is scary, right? We've got these evil hackers out there uh, or cyber criminals, right? They're trying to avoid saying the, the term hacker. But, oh my gosh, you know, if they're scared of it and, you know, it's too technical that they don't want to deal with it, right? They, sh- they shut down. And instead, I think we need to build them up and, and show them that, you know, maybe you're gullible, right? Maybe skepticism isn't your, your strength. Well, you, you still have something you can contribute. Let me help you find where your strengths are and let me you know, invest in you in those areas and show you that there is a, a way you can contribute to the teams we're, we're building around security, you know, you know, whether that's vigilance or secrecy or culture, right? There, there are other habits that you can bring to the team that, that actually really can make a difference. So, you know, changing that mindset, right? And, and we do that through habits. But gosh, it's got to be everybody on board, whether it's your CFO, your CEO, your general counsel, HR, right? Everybody can play a role in helping secure an organization. And, you know, it's it's one thing to just say that. But gosh, when I take that personality test, right, everybody knows what Myers-Briggs is. And, and oh, yeah, I'm, a you know, an ENFJ or whatever. People are like really that resonates with them. And so I think finding a, a way to, to make security approachable and show people that they can make a difference is, I think, a prerequisite for success, you know, in, in any organization. Yeah, I really like that approach because it's kind of like getting them to understand, obviously, that they play a role, but at the same time, like, you can make a difference and, like, by being aware and understanding, like you say, like you say, fishing and other things, like, so many things where it's just like, it's so helpful for them to understand and learn these skills, especially for students in a later life, like, the things that will value them. But yeah, look, I mean, I guess... One of the biggest challenges is the scope. <laughs> like, there's just so many people. So, we'll flip to a, a slightly different question now. So, what are your biggest areas of concern? I mean, we're heading into we're in 2023. If you were looking at security now, what what are the big things that you're looking at and going that concerns me? I definitely have a concern about just the overall cost of security. I'm maybe hypersensitive to that being at a university where we don't have, you know, the the budgets that, that maybe a bank would. But, you know, I, I think as, you know, logging has always been the most expensive part of security, right? In, in terms of storage, as organizations expand to the cloud, for example, they're making in costs that for us aren't sustainable, right? So, you know, we, again, we, we, we compared doing logging on-prem versus logging in the cloud, and it's like a three or four X difference. So, you know, I, I think I'm on board with the cloud being, you know, maybe a more secure option than most organizations can can offer. But at the same time, you're losing visibility. And, you know, again, zero trust, focus on prevention. So, you know, if you had the choice, definitely focus on prevention. But the thing that logs and monitoring, you know, and threat hunting give you is that iterative process where you you, you can help spot your blind spots. You can help detect the trust relationships you're, you're baking in with having those providers, but those providers aren't going to give you that same level of value if you're not able to capture all your logs. And most people, frankly, can't capture all their logs because it's it's far too expensive. So reducing you know, the costs is something, you know, this, this term has been around for 10 years now, but there's a cybersecurity poverty line. You know, different people might, might draw the line at, at different levels. But, you know, a higher ed institution that maybe has five team members, there's only so much we can do compared to what JP Morgan can do that has more employees than all of us and you. And they spend more on, you know, cybersecurity every year than a big university like SMU has in their endowment. 
Right. The, I spent the, more in one tool, right? Than like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so gosh, uh, you know, I, I think we still have a lot more capabilities than most other nonprofits. You know, I mean, we have more capabilities than, than some, you know, city governments or school districts. So how do we, you know, protect the whole community, right? Because a rising tide raises all ships, right? We all have to collectively get better to put the bad guys, the cyber criminals out of business, right? We need to make it too expensive for them and, you know, much less expensive for us. But today it's flipped. It's, you know, it costs five bucks to do a denial of service attack and it costs a quarter million dollars to put in an infrastructure to protect against a denial of service attack. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, that kind of asymmetry in, in costs is something we've got to figure out. I like the thing about the logging and, and the other thing is like people spend a lot of time with stuff, but unless you've got it set up right and you know what you're looking for half the time, you just end up with lots and lots and lots of noise. <laughs> unless you've got an army of people to <laughs> sort that right, out. right. Again, we're still in a, a little bit of the wild, wild west in, in, in terms of figuring that out. And I think it's still going to take, you know, years of work to to get to the place where it's, you know, more approachable for, for smaller organizations. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the amount of organizations that, like I said, I've worked with a lot of large organizations in this role, my prior role, but you'd be surprised, like, <laughs> they're not always as great as you <laughs> would imagine in some cases. So can you talk me through what, skills you think make a really good security professional? I was having this conversation the other day with, with someone and you know I, I think it's it's not technical skills, it's really the soft skills I think we we need to have, right? So curiosity. You know, one of one of my interview questions is is, is always what does your home lab look like? Do you have a home lab? Do you have gear that you've, you know, bought off, uh, you know, eBay or, you know, virtual machines that you play around with and you've got Kali and and you're doing testing against Metasploitable or, you know, whatever. That kind of curiosity is not something that I can train you on. And security five years ago, different from what it's like today, very different in, in, in a five years from now. So if if you don't have that hunger for, for lifelong learning, yeah, I, I think you're going to kind of stay in the same place, which is totally fine, right? We still have COBOL programmers today. Uh, but man, I mean, when you've got a small team, right, you've got to have, you know, the ability to to grow and evolve as a team. That's so important. So empathy for other people is really huge. I mean, curiosity and empathy, right, will get you a long way in a cybersecurity career. Maybe you don't naturally have uh a comfort around networking or firewalls. Okay, cool. There's a place for you. you. There are other avenues where you can maybe you you know you're a great pen tester. Maybe you really love you know security training and awareness. Whatever part of the organization you fit in, yeah, we we definitely need help. So you know there, there's there's room for everyone. One of the other things that I always find and is like we hear this there's not enough skilled people in security. Banded around about a lot. What do you think to that? Do you think there isn't, or do you think that it's just not looking in the right places? I think we as security leaders need to be investing in you know, the next generation of talent. I don't know where these numbers come from, and and you know how rigorous uh, <laughs> the the analysis has been to know. I mean, it's, it certainly feels like there's limits on the amount of talent out there, and you know. I think it may be driving us more towards a model where we are more outsourced. Right? Some organizations just can't. I talked to one hospital, the longest tenured employee in their cyber team was there for, for six months, right? They just finished their probationary period. It's hard to keep up. You know, maybe we're outsourcing in order to just make the hiring process somebody else's problem. But yeah, in, investing in people, building them up, taking a chance on folks outside of the security team in IT or 
in other teams like marketing or, or you know, training, lots of opportunities to go find people. And I think it's up to us as security leaders to be creative about that, right? I've stopped asking anyone to have CISSPs on my team, right? I think that's a barrier to getting, you know, new talent out there because gosh, I mean, not everybody starts there. Not everybody can afford to go take those tests. Not every employer you know, is willing to fund them. So I, I think the all the good CISOs out there that I talk to, they have a huge training budget and, and they invest in people inside of their team and outside of their team. And, you know, I, I've paid for my help desk team to go get their uh, Security Plus certifications. I mean, again, you know, just building people up, I think we can have a lot of success in security if we're investing in people. And yeah, I, I think th- there's more we can do, obviously, but security, it's, it's 100% about people. Yeah, amazing. And, and I agree with you. I mean, look, we bring on a large, we've got a pen testing business that we have that we support. We also have a GRC business, but bring a large amount of graduates every year. I think people who've heard you talk about this before is it's, it's looking for, like you said, very similar, like inquisitive mind, wanting to mm-hmm. keep asking questions. Don't take no for an answer in a lot of cases and they learn and they keep weaving the way around to figure it out. If you have those kind of skills and you have the drive, you can teach people this stuff. I think sometimes very much like, oh, it's really difficult. Yeah, it is. There are parts of this that are really difficult. But at the same time, if you don't give people a chance, <laughs> I mean, exactly what you said, you're going to end up with a load of people who didn't gain security and you genuinely will end up with a, an issue of getting people in. Definitely. Or salaries will just go crazy and <laughs> you won't be able to hire people, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> One of the last questions I always like to ask people is, if you had one wish to solve one problem in security, what would it be? You know, I, I mean, my passion in security is really around security awareness uh, training. So so my wish is, man, you know, I'm working on it. Uh, uh, we're trying to build training that is demonstrably uh, effective in changing people's behaviors. That's that's why I started writing the, the WellAware book uh, five-ish years ago, uh, you know, the, the nine cybersecurity habits were really about finding ways to measure behavior change. There, there's a lot of security training out there that can cover, you know, here, here's what compliance around HIPAA looks like. That's cool. It, it's, edu- it's, it's educational. People need to know that information. But it's, it's a, you know, we have, you know, a, a way in corporate America to get people to change their behaviors, right? We we trick them by calling them wellness programs and we try and get them to eat healthier and exercise and maybe quit smoking or drinking or whatever. Like the, those are all things that we incentivize in wellness programs, right? It's all about behavior change. And we can tie that back to an actual like cost reduction in terms of lost productivity or time off or insurance costs, right? Imagine the parallels if we can change, you know, cybersecurity behaviors. And, you know, for us, that starts with like the cyber personality test and, and some of the habit uh, recipes we're, we're building into our training. But again, I want to know as a CISO, right, what is the the most effective training program that I have to give to my my team members, to my employees? And I've A-B tested, you know, trainings versus each other. And, you know, we need to do more of that, right? With antivirus or with firewalls or whatever other security thing we have. There are, you know, head-to-head testing that, that we do. I've never seen that for security training. And, you know, again, you know, we, we've got a product, well over security. Feel free to check us out. But it starts with the personality test, right? You wouldn't go to a doctor and just, you know, if, if you, you know, in the first five minutes of talking to the doctor, they're like, here, take this pill. I don't know what's wrong with you, but it'll fix everything. Uh, you're going to be like, mm, that's, that's a little weird. 
instead, right, you want to have a diagnostic. You want to help, you know, understand more about you and your life. So starting with a, a question, you know, a personality test will help me customize your learning path just for you. I think, you know, again, we, we built all of the WellAware program around neuroscience and psychology. And we, we need to understand our humans better in order to, to set them up for better success later on. We, we Again, we want the most effective thing because uh, we know we only have limited amounts of time with our, our employees that we can get get them to, to do training every, every month or every year, right? So that time you know, with our employees is, is incredibly valuable, right? So we, we, we've got to get the most out of that. One of the things that we've always done on this is, is there any other security leaders that you think we should have in this podcast? So is there anyone that you think we should be talking to who, who's really interesting, who'd be a good guest? So actually, I would love to hear from Adam Shostak. He is the, uh, the creator of Threat Modeling and Cybersecurity. He literally wrote the book about it. But there is a new book that uh, he's, he's got coming out, I believe, next week or the week after. It's all about how uh, it's a deep dive into the cybersecurity of Star Wars. So definitely check his book out. If you know, well, read read Project Zero Trust first, and then uh, <laughs> uh, read read Adam's book on on Star Wars and and cybersecurity. But great, great guy. And you know, again, A New Hope is entirely essentially about breach response. Right, the breach happens in Rogue One, and <laughs> and you know, it, it's it's the management political battles between Darth Vader and some of these other people. Vader actually dera- personally derails their their breach investigation. They were they were almost there. So there's so many things like that. The book is just chock full of of, of those kinds of examples. Uh, and you know, learning more about cybersecurity through through Star Wars is is amazing. Sounds like a book for me. So uh, thanks, George. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Can you let our listeners where they can hear more from you? So uh, LinkedIn is there anywhere else? Yeah, uh, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn uh, or, or follow me. Happy to help out, ask questions. Our website is wellawaresecurity.com. That's where you can take the the free cybersecurity personality test. We offer training and workshops as well. So lots of blog articles up there about different things. So we focused on zero trust for the last little bit, but definitely happy to, to talk to anyone who wants to, you know, to supplement or take their next their security awareness program for the next level. Thanks, George. Appreciate it.